Okay. Good morning, everybody. Let's open up in a word of prayer, and we'll get into our Daniel study. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and just give you praise for another opportunity that we have to come together as a body of believers and and worship you, Lord, and and study your word, uh, fellowship with one another. Um, Lord, we just thank you so much for uh, the time that we have each and every week. Pray, Lord, for the times that we have throughout the week as we get together um, in our individual studies. And Lord, we just praise you and thank you for the, this body that you've made us a part of. Lord, we just pray that you would be with us this morning as we study through the book of Daniel. We thank you, Lord, for the truths that you have given to us um, through Daniel um, that we have recorded down here for us. We just pray that you would give us understanding and insight into uh, the word that you've given us. And Lord, we just pray now that you'd bless our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 7, uh, this morning, we've made it all the way through half of the book of Daniel and our study together, um, and so for the last half of the book, we're going to embark on some of the most profound and exciting, I hope we all think they're exciting, revelations of future events that the scriptures contain for us, that God has revealed for us through the man Daniel. Through the first half of the book, we've been introduced to Daniel. We've seen his character. We've seen the mighty ways in which God has chosen to use him in service to him. Daniel was the counselor of kings. He was the advisor to two of the most powerful and influential influential rulers that the world has ever known. He was an uncompromising man, one who served the Lord with all of his heart refusing to dishonor him or do anything that might be construed as defiling to the Lord. And God blessed him for his faithfulness. God gave him the ability to interpret dreams and visions. And with this ability, God sovereignly used Daniel to accomplish his own purposes as he brought revelation and truth to the world at this point in time. And we could say not even just at this point in time, but we are still reading about the truth that Daniel brought. Uh, was able to convey to the world. The book of Daniel is essential to the understanding of world history, both past and future world history. In the past, we know why things happened because of Daniel. We know why empires rose and fell. We know why rulers were allowed to do some of the things that they did, both good things and terrible things. We know why The nation of Israel was subjected to many of the things that it had to suffer through in its history. Daniel reveals much to us about this past history, but it also reveals much to us about future history. Prophecy that is revealed in Daniel is the history of the future. And we know this to be true already. How do we know it to be true? Because many of the things that Daniel revealed as future events in his time are past events in our time. Daniel related history, presented it as events that had not yet occurred. But as history has revealed to us today, they did occur just as Daniel said that they would occur in the future for him. God used Daniel to give information about the future. And so when it comes to the events that Daniel prophesied that have not yet occurred, that are still future to us, 
we can be just as sure that they will happen at some future point. Just as we see recorded here. Daniel is the key to our understanding of what God has in store for the world in the future. There are other passages that deal with future events as well, to be sure. But Daniel provides a starting point. It provides the Old Testament gateway, if you will, to other passages that reveal even more about future events. As we come to Daniel chapter 7, we're going to see these future events unfold for us. In this chapter, we're going to see it all come to a head, all come to an apex. The first six chapters really are mostly narrative in the book of Daniel. They mostly brought us information about the times and the peoples involved. There was also prophecy involved there as well, most notably chapter 2. But for the most part, those chapters were narrative with some prophecy mixed into it. Now, as we come to chapter 7 and following, all the way through chapter 12, which is the end of the book, we're going to see the reverse of that. We're going to get into prophecy with just a smattering of narrative thrown in from here on out. Some commentators split the book into two halves, chapters 1 through 6 as the narrative portion, and chapters 7 through 12 as the prophetic portion. But others divide it somewhat differently based on the focus of the writing. Um, and as you may have noticed, I'm actually going to try to use slides today. So, um, Ad, if you want to go to the next slide. There we go. And I'll admit, I stole these slides. I did not come up with them all myself, but I did make some alterations to them. So, so I only say that because if you see something on there that you don't quite like, then I'm going to say that's probably something that I stole rather than I put on there. But anyway, um, so there's the structure of Daniel. So if you'll recall from previous studies, I told you way back when we were studying chapter 2 that there were two languages used in the writing of the book of Daniel. There is Hebrew which you can see the Hebrew portions there, which was the language of the Jews. But there was also Aramaic, which was the Gentile language. It was the common language used in the day. Chapters 1 and chapters 8 through 12 were all written in Hebrew, while chapters 2 through 7 were written in Aramaic. Well, why is that? Well, chapters 2 through 7 are the chapters that primarily deal with the nations, with the Gentile nations. Um, and if you remember, we talked about the pairing of the chapters as well. Adam, can you go to the next one? There we go. Um, we talked about some of the, how the chapters, those, those chapters two through seven, kind of pair together as well. Chapters four and five, the middle two chapters, uh, dealt with the Gentile kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, and how God dealt with their sins of pride and their sins of arrogance. Chapters 3 and 6 were the chapters dealing with the fiery furnace and the lion's den, seemingly having to do with faithful men that God delivered from death. But in reality, the main lesson was that the Gentile rulers at that time, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, were not as great and did not have more authority than God did. In each of those instances, God proved and showed that he was more powerful than they were. And then as the book ends to those six chapters, we have chapters 2 and 7, the chapters that deal with the prophecies of the nations. 
In chapter 2, we have the great statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about, divided into four parts. And in chapter 7, as we'll see, we have the four beasts, and we'll get into that today. These chapters show the outcome of the nations of the world. So however you choose to divide the book of Daniel, whether you want to take the, the, the narrative section, 1 through 6 or 7 through 12, um, uh, into, into that section, or whether you want to divide it into um, the Hebrew and Aramaic language, the outcome really is the same. It really is just a way to, to look at the book. It doesn't change the outcome of it at all. But Daniel shows us the future, resent, the future result of world events, and we will see the culmination of all of world history, and we're going to see it right here in chapter 7. Now, chapter 7 is one of the greatest chapters of prophetic revelation that the Bible contains for us, uh, and the main reason that I say that is because it is in this chapter that we get a glimpse of the day when God will take back his creation once and for all. Today, God is sovereign over the entire creation. That has not changed. That will never change. We've seen that with how he's dealt with kings of the world. We've seen how he dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen how he dealt with Belshazzar. But it is also true that the creation has been given over to corruption. It is not as it should be. And there will be a time when it will be restored to what it should be. Romans 8 verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. At this point in time, the creation is suffering. It's been subjected to the slavery of corruption because of the sin that has entered into the world. But just like the suffering of childbirth, it's a suffering that is anticipating the coming of something glorious, the coming of something wonderful. It's anticipating the time when this world, as it is now, under the rule and authority of those on the earth, will be conquered and defeated, and the true king of all creation will rightfully take his place over it all. And that time is seen here in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. If you skip down, we'll, we'll, we'll skip ahead a little bit here. Look down at verse 13. We won't actually get to verse 13 today, but we're going we're gonna to read part of it. Where it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." This here is the summation of all that God has in store for the earth. This is where it is all leading, what we are anxiously anticipating. This is the time when Jesus Christ will take his seat on the throne and will rule upon the earth for all eternity. And we won't have to worry about things that we worry about today. We won't have to worry about pollution and natural disasters and viruses. And we won't have to worry about national deficits or corrupt political agendas. And we won't have to worry about terrorists or parents that murder their own children. All of that will be over. And that's the apex of what God is showing us through Daniel in this seventh chapter. The time when the world is no longer in the world's hands, but is truly ruled by the Son of God. 
Now, as I mentioned before, the seventh chapter of Daniel is parallel to the second chapter of Daniel. It's going to be dealing with a lot of the same things. And we're going to see the four kingdoms rise and have authority on the earth, and then a fifth kingdom that will do away with them all. And if you remember, we had the statue that was comprised of four levels. And Adam, if you can hit the next slide. So that was the statue from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. I mean, I don't know if it looked exactly like that, but you get the idea. It's a representation. Probably not wearing a skirt, but maybe. Not very what? Wearing a skirt. Yeah, yeah. The beard probably is a little bit different. I don't know. But anyway, it had the gold head. It had the silver chest and arms. It had the bronze belly and thighs. And then it had the iron legs with the iron and clay feet mixed in together. And so this statue was then smashed to pieces by the stone that was cut out without hands, which became a mountain that filled the whole earth. And in chapter 7, we'll see many similarities because this will be dealing with really the same things here. There will be four beasts, and the four beasts will have their authority taken away to make, uh, to make way for the kingdom of the Son of Man. So some people would question, if these are dealing with the same subject, why do we have it twice? Why do we have it in chapter 2 and then we have it again in chapter 7? Well, there's a couple different reasons. One, there's more information given in Daniel chapter 7. We see the details fleshed out here in this chapter and will reveal several things that we did not see before in chapter 2. But another thing that we see is that the perspective changes with this vision. In chapter 2, the vision was given to King Nebuchadnezzar, the Gentile king, and the image that he saw was, was majestic and grand. Remember, he was frightened by this awesome statue that stood up in front of him. Here in Daniel chapter 7, the beasts are terrible. The beasts are grotesque. The difference lies in a matter of perspective. To the world, these four nations are majestic and great. To God, they are grotesque. Chapter 2 primarily deals with man's perspective. Chapter 7 deals more with God's perspective. And I would say that even though chapter 7 is written in Aramaic and it does deal with the future of the nations, it will also deal with Israel and serves as the transitional book in, uh, chapter in the book for dealing with the nations um, of the Gentiles to turning our attention back to Israel, which will be the focus of the rest of the book of Daniel. So as we look into the chapter, keep this perspective in mind. Now as we look at the first verses, we see why there is this change in perspective. Look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So who is it that's seeing this dream? Daniel is getting this dream. Who was it in chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar got the dream in chapter 2, right? God communicated the first vision through the pagan king to show the nations of the world what was in store for them. There the nations were in focus. Now God is turning to his own people to show them what this will mean for them someday. And so he's using his man Daniel for this task. The focus is going to be on the kingdom that will replace the nations of the world. So God is using Daniel to show this to us. 
Now, you may have noticed that chronologically, chapter 7 does not follow chapter 6. In fact, the timing of the events here really take place between chapters 4 and 5. This takes place during the first year of Belshazzar's reign, after Nebuchadnezzar has been gone for quite some time, about 20, 25 years, somewhere in there. And we'll just get this out of the way now. The last six chapters do not follow the first six in chronological order. None of them do. Next, next slide. Oh, awesome. Um, so the last six chapters contain four prophecies that were given to Daniel. Two of them occur between the events of chapters 4 and 5. Uh, and the other ones occur after the events of chapter 5, possibly even after chapter Six, And they are grouped together because really they deal with the same issues. The prophecies of chapters 8 through 12 further explain the prophecy of chapter 7. And they provide more details um, to give us more insight into the future plans of God. We asked uh, the question when we studied through chapter 5 of where Daniel had been after Nebuchadnezzar was no longer on the throne. And you'll recall that there were some 23 years between the events of chapters 4 and 5, when Belshazzar didn't even remember who Daniel was, the queen came in and had to remind Belshazzar that there was this man, Daniel. So we asked, where had Daniel been? Well, we don't know for sure where he was, um, but we do know that he spent at least some of his time dealing with these visions that he'd received from God. So at the beginning of chapter 7, Belshazzar is on the throne at this time. Remember, he's... He's really ruling as a co-regent with a guy by the name of Nabonidus or Nabonidus or I don't know however you pronounce his name. But do you remember what Belshazzar did? Do you remember what kind of guy that he was? Belshazzar was a wicked man. He was the one who took the vessels of God that were in the temple and used them in his drunken party to mock God and worship the gods of wood and stone and metal. And that really proved to be Belshazzar's downfall. So he certainly was no righteous man. He was certainly not like Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar finally acknowledged and recognized the God of Daniel and of the Israelites in captivity. And Nebuchadnezzar's son, after Nebuchadnezzar was no longer on the throne, evil Merodach, he took the throne after him and there was indication, and we looked at this when we studied it, there was indication in 2 Kings 25 that he was kind and sympathetic towards the Israelites as well. But now they had this, well, we'll call him a bozo, Belshazzar on the throne, and things were going downhill at this point in time. And you have to ask yourself if Belshazzar would consider the God of the Israelites with such contempt, what do you suppose his attitude towards the Israelites themselves would have been? Probably not very favorable. He probably didn't look on them very highly. So for the nation of Israel, still living in captivity in Babylon, you have to realize the situation here, things were not looking good for them. What was going to happen to them? What was going to be the outcome of all that they were going through and had already gone through up to this point? The question had to be on their minds, was God really ever going to restore them? Was he really going to fulfill his promise to them? Because you have to keep in mind that by this time, the Jews had been captive for 50 or 60 years. 
And it's at the beginning, and it's, and it's at this time of wondering that God reveals this vision to Daniel. It says, then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So Daniel recognized the importance of this dream when he had it. To the point that not only did he write it down, preserving it for a historical record, but he related the summary of it, it says. In other words, he told it to people. He, he communicated this. He knew that this was something that he had to tell people. So he not only wrote it down for us, but he shared the knowledge of it. And this might possibly give us a glimpse into what Daniel had been doing, or part of what he had done, since the end of Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps he had moved on to be ministering to his own people. In any case, God's sovereignty is working again here. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, but he couldn't remember it when he woke up. That's like most of my dreams. I don't know what your dreams are like, but most of my dreams, you have these dreams and you wake up and you remember maybe bits and pieces of them, if you remember any of them at all. But Daniel not only remembered it, but he had the presence of mind to write it down. And no doubt this was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This isn't just some some random chance that Daniel happened to write this one down. This was the Holy Spirit working in his life. But it's really a good thing that he didn't just wake up, think to himself, well, that was a weird dream, and then go back to sleep. Very fortunate for us. But again, sovereignty of God in action, right? So what did he dream? Look at verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So here's Daniel lying on his bed and having a dream. And what does he see in his dream? He's standing in front of a great sea, or he's by a great sea in some way. In fact, it doesn't even really say he's there. He just sees this taking place. And I love reading about dreams, because dreams are so weird, so fascinating to me. They can be so strange, but they can feel so normal at the same time. You dream something in the dream, and it feels absolutely real, and then you wake up and you're like, well, that couldn't have happened. That was the strangest thing I've ever I've ever." ever seen. Well, here's Daniel seeing this great sea. What sea is it? Well, I don't think it really matters what sea it is. Some will say that it's the Mediterranean Sea that he's seeing because that's the only sea that he would have been familiar with. And that may be the case, but I don't think that's really necessarily the point here. I think the point is that this great sea is indicative of mankind, or it's indicative of the world. Daniel is beholding the world, basically. This is not the only time that the world is referred to in this way. In fact, even in prophecy. Um, I want to turn to a couple passages with you to see this. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13 for a minute. There's one verse here we'll look at, and then we'll turn over to Revelation as well. In Matthew 13, look down at verse 47, where it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. Okay, And out of this dragnet, verse 48, they're they're pulled onto the beach, and these fish will either be taken and put in containers, they will be the good fish, or the bad ones will be thrown out. So in other words, out of the sea, there are two kinds of people, is really what we're seeing here. Good fish or bad fish. Those who will see the kingdom, 
those who will not see the kingdom. The sea is used as a reference to the world and the mass of humanity within the world. Now turn over to Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation chapter 17, in this chapter, we're going to see the great harlot. And there's similar imagery here. We'll start in verse 1, Revelation 17. And it says, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So here, we don't have the sea, but we have many waters. Well, there's water involved. Look down at verse 15. And he said to me, The waters which you saw... Where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So again, there's very similar imagery here. Here the water symbolizes the nations, the multitudes, the people. It's being used to represent the world and the people that are in it. So if we turn back to Daniel 7, here with Daniel seeing this great sea, this is symbolic of the mass of humanity. If it If it looked like the Mediterranean Sea to him, that's fine, but the most important aspect of it is that this is happening to the nations in general. Well, what's the point? What's what's happening to them? These four winds, it says, are stirring them up. There are four winds of heaven. Well, what are the four winds of heaven? Well, there are winds from they are winds from every direction. We're familiar with the phrase scattered to the four winds, or sometimes we might say the, the four corners of the earth. The idea is that this is all-encompassing. It's a complete, total picture. There are winds coming from every direction, and there is another element that makes this even more complete. It says they have their source in heaven. These are heaven's winds. They are supernatural winds. They are God-sent winds. So what we see here, once again, is the picture of God's sovereignty over humanity. That's what Daniel is seeing. That is referenced first. It takes center stage for everything else that follows. What is going on in this dream will be brought about by the sovereign power of God. God is the one acting upon the nations of the earth to bring these events about. And we see that in verse 3. It says, And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The sea is being churned up to produce these four beasts, and we'll see the characteristics of each of these beasts in turn. But they do not come up on their own. This is God who is at work to bring them up. They are going to be just like we saw in chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 5. Those that rule upon the earth, those that are given authority, are given their authority by God. It is God who is at work, and that's what this indicates here as well. These four beasts, they come up from the stirring of the sea, and they are all different. They are all unique, but they all have one thing in common. It says they are great. Not in reference to their character, but to their size. They are huge. They are domineering. They are massive in size. And each of them will have characteristics of an animal. But they are, you'll notice that they're not a specific animal in and of themselves, but Daniel will use animals in an attempt to describe them all. But they are massive. They are terrifying things that come up out of the sea. And Daniel does his best to allow us to know what it is that they look like. 
And you'll see what I mean in verse 4 with the description of the first beast. You can, yeah, bring that up. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. So the first beast, it says, was like a lion. He doesn't actually say it was a lion, but it was like a lion. And it was like a lion with eagle's wings. Not an animal that actually exists. I don't know if anybody has ever seen. I mean, that animal doesn't exist. You notice it's a drawing, not a picture, right? We have a picture here to represent it, but we have to acknowledge that lions don't have wings, right? So while Daniel makes a reference to it this way, and it may look just like this. Maybe it does look exactly like a lion who just has wings. This is not an actual lion. So when we're talking about this, we're talking about dream reality again, right? We can't be sure if Daniel actually saw a lion just like this, but this is how he closely represents it and how he relates it to us. So the first beast represents the kingdom of Babylon. This would be Babylon the Great. And like in chapter 2, this was the kingdom that was currently in power when Daniel had his vision. It was the first of the great Gentile world powers during the period known as the times of the Gentiles, which we talked about before. And I think that's really what we're seeing here. If you remember back in our study of chapter 2, this is the time established by God in order to bring about discipline on the nation of Israel. And we get the term from Luke chapter 21, verse 24, where Jesus said, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And he's talking here about the end of the period of time that started with the captivity of Judah with the Babylonians. Beginning around 605 BC. And at the time, and the time will not end until the Messiah returns to earth to establish his kingdom. Rescue the nation of Israel when Jerusalem is no longer trampled underfoot by the Gentile nations. It is the end of this time that we will be seeing here as we move along in Daniel chapter 7. Now as we discussed in detail when we were studying through chapter 2, during the times of the Gentiles, the world will be dominated by four world powers. And primarily, keep in mind that the focal point of the world in our context, from God's perspective, is the land of the nation of Israel. All of these world powers will have, at one time or another, have complete dominance over Israel and over the city of Jerusalem. So as I stated before, this all started in 605 BC, which is the time when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came in and took hostages of the Jewish youths back to Babylon with him and began the dominance over Jerusalem. The first beast is the nation of Babylon. Well, how do we know? One of the main symbols in the Babylonian kingdom was the lion. In fact, there are still statues of lions standing there today that are as old as this time period. And not only that, yeah, there we go, but on the gates leading into Babylon, on the Ishtar gate constructed by Nebuchadnezzar in around 575 BC, there were lions on the gates, lions that had wings like eagles. And they say those are the, the wings there, like eagles. In the ancient world, there, were, there would have been no doubt that a beast looking like a lion with wings would be representative of Babylon. 
So the lion is the king of the beasts. It's considered that even today. We talk about that today. The eagle is recognized as king of the birds, you could say. So this was a majestic beast, huge and terrible, but about as majestic as you could get. And remember what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 when telling him that he was the head of gold? He said in Daniel 2.37, You, O king, are the king of kings. Of all the kingdoms, of all the kings that ruled them, no one ruled like Nebuchadnezzar did. This majestic beast is Babylon. The end of the verse, verse 4, he says, I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And here we see the beast go through a transformation. It seems to go from, uh, from being less of a beast and more like a man. Well, what does this in, indicate to us? What does this show us? Well, let's look at what happens to it in turn here. First of all, the wings are plucked, it says. This is an indication that the kingdom deteriorates in some fashion. Something happened to cause some kind of downfall or lessening of its majesty. And there are two possibilities for this here, with good scholars on either side. First, they're saying that this could, be the res- uh, this could be referring to the death of Nebuchadnezzar and how the kingdom was never the same after Nebuchadnezzar's death. And there's no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar was the absolute ruler of Babylon and that those that came after him never really had that same grip, that same level of dominance and control over the kingdom that he'd had. Um, and they weren't able to expand the kingdom with conquest like Nebuchadnezzar could. The plucking of the wings could indicate that the beast was no longer able to move as far or as fast as it once did, and that's a possibility. But to me, that doesn't really fit well with the last part of the verse where the beast stands up and is given a human mind. So the second view, the other view, is that this could refer to the downfall of Nebuchadnezzar as seen in chapter 4, when God took a proud and arrogant man and plucked his wings humbled him to the point where he was made to crawl on all fours, eat the grass of the field, and live like an animal, if you remember the events from chapter 4. And then after he had learned his lesson, what happened to him? God restored him, right? Lifted up, made to stand on two feet, human mind given to it. So the beast gives way to a human element, and this is the only beast that is transformed in this way given less beastly characteristics. And Nebuchadnezzar went into his ordeal as an arrogant and a selfish man, but he came out of it praising the name of the Almighty God. He had a humble heart, and he recognized the sovereignty of God when he was, when he was finished, when God was finished with him after this seven years. And quite possibly, although we can't say for sure, but he may have come out of that experience having given his life over to God. God may have used that experience to bring Nebuchadnezzar to salvation, and I see that as a possibility of what this is referring to here. What started out as a beast was transformed into something like a man with a human mind. So the first beast here is the nation of Babylon, and what happened to Babylon was recognizable in the humbling event that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Let's move on to the second beast, verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And the next one is like a bear. Again, 
Not a bear necessarily, but it resembles a bear. Daniel's closest approximation. And it goes on in the verse. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. So here's this bear-like animal, great and terrifying. Well, what is this beast? What does this one represent? Well, this would be the Medo-Persian Empire. A mighty empire that had massive strength. They weren't particularly fast conquerors, but they were impressively mighty. They had impressive strength, like a bear, you could say. And this is an accurate depiction of Medo-Persia. Plus, as we saw back in chapter 5, Medo-Persia was the nation that conquered Babylon. They came directly after the Babylonians. And it says it was raised up on one side. Well, what does this signify? What does that mean? Well, evidently, the animal Daniel saw was slightly deformed in some way. It had one side that was raised higher than the other. Why is that significant? Well, again, the Medo-Persian Empire was an empire composed of two different nations, Media and Persia. And in this relationship, it was no secret that the Persians were the dominant nation. They were raised, the raised up half of the beast. Together, the Medo-Persian armies overtook many different nations, but there were three nations that stood out from the rest. Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. These nations are most likely what the three ribs in the mouth represent. They were the three primary nations that somewhat defined the power that the Medo-Persian Empire had in their prime. They were able to conquer these nations. These were by no means the only nations that they overtook, and there are other views that point to other nations that may be in view to the three, three ribs. Some say that they might um, be some major provinces within the kingdom that's in view. Some say that they may indicate Babylon, Media, and Persia, um, although that would kind of mean that the beast is somewhat consuming itself, so I don't know if that, how much sense that makes. But still others say that these aren't ribs, but they're fangs. Although there's really no support for that interpretation. I think it's clear that these ribs represent nations that were conquered by this beast, which most commentators agree. And this this is further seen in the command given at the end of the verse, where it says, They said to it, Arise, devour much meat. So it was already consuming nations. And here it was told to consume more. The Medo-Persian Empire did not sit idle. It was a conquering nation that kept expanding its borders. Now the question here is, who said this? It says, they said to it. Who are they? Well, in all of this, we're not told. It's not really clear. But keep in mind, we're seeing the divine sovereignty of God at work here, right? These are the four winds of heaven that are stirring all this up. It was God that stirred up the waters. It was God that gave the first beast the mind of a man. It was most likely God giving the orders here, or perhaps the angels who are delivering the message from God. But either way, this is by sovereign decree. Look with me over in Isaiah uh, chapter 44. Several weeks ago, we looked into the book of Jeremiah to see how God used Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans as his servants. He was calling the shots. It was by his sovereign power that he used them to accomplish his purposes. Now in Isaiah 44, we see God's instructions to Cyrus. 
Cyrus the Great was the main Persian ruler, and he was the man in charge when the Babylonian Empire fell. Look down at verse 28 of Isaiah 44. It says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Into chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. So you see here in Jeremiah, very similar to what we talked about with Nebuchadnezzar. Even though Cyrus was not a man of God, he was not a believer, he was a pagan king, Yet he was the man that God appointed to do certain things. And a part of what he was appointed to do was to subdue nations before him. So when the Medo-Persian beast is told to arise and devour much meat, this was part of the sovereign declaration of God. God was using them to accomplish his will on earth at that time. The Medo-Persian empire lasted around 200 years and was a very powerful and mighty empire. And that is until the next nation came onto the scene. Look at verse 6. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. These visions kept getting, you know, they keep getting better and better, don't they? Now we've got a beast that looks like a leopard. Uh, this comes out of the sea after the last one. Of course, it doesn't look like any kind of leopard that we've ever seen, right? But it's really the best way to describe it. The leopard, first of all, has four wings, and it also has four heads, right? It's a four-winged, four-headed leopard, just like we see at the zoo, right? I got one in my backyard. Do you? I would like to see that. Bring a picture of that one. I'll put it, I'll replace it on the slide. And these, so, so what we're seeing here. Uh, is the empire that came after Medo-Persia was the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And these characteristics pertain to that empire. In what way? Well, how did the Greeks have four wings? How did they have four heads? How were they like a leopard? Well, the leopard is known as one of the most agile, speediest, fiercest, ferocious cats in the world. And it's one of the best and most opportunistic hunters. The Greek Empire under Alexander the Great expanded out and conquered the known world faster than any other empire in history. By the age of 33, Alexander had conquered all that there was to conquer, ranging from Europe to Egypt to India. And you can kind of see the area on the slide there. The Greek Empire was a leopard, but not just a leopard. It was a leopard with wings. Its speed in, in conquering these places was unequaled. But this goes further than that, because this leopard also had four heads. How fast can a four-headed leopard be? Well, this is where the vision gets really interesting, especially when you consider that this was given to Daniel about 200 years before this was relevant. Alexander the Great died at the age of 33, and his kingdom was divided up amongst his generals. Just as a guess... How many generals do you suppose there were that it was divided up amongst? Four. Cassander, Lysimachus, 
Seleucus and Ptolemy. Of these, two became dominant over the others in history, Seleucus and Ptolemy. These areas were in the Middle East and Egypt, respectively. If you remember back in chapter 2, we made mention of the Greek Empire being split into two from the belly to the legs, which was what that represented. But in all, there were four parts to the division. And therefore, there were four heads to this leopard. Remarkable, the detail that we have here. This is the prophecy of God. This is the telling of history over 200 years before it even happens. What are the chances of getting this right? For you and me, there's no chance. And I would even say for God, there's no chance at all because this is not chance. This is God determining that this is going to happen. Because God was in charge of all this happening. This was his sovereign plan. And look at the last part of the verse, and we see this yet again. And dominion was given to it. Once again, there is an outside influence that is acting upon what is going on here. Giving it dominion. Who is the one giving it dominion? God is giving it dominion. All of these nations, the same thing is going on. It's the winds of heaven stirring up the waters. The first beast had its wings plucked and was made to stand on two feet. The second beast was told to arise and devour much meat. The, first, or the third beast was given dominion, it says. The beasts are not in charge. God is in charge. It's true for them back then. It's true for nations today. And that is true of the fourth beast as well. Look with me at verse 7. And we're going to have to wait until our next time together to look at the beast in detail. But I want to see the introduction in verse 7 here. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I just want to point out a few things about this beast before we're done this morning. We just have a few minutes left. First off, this is the most terrifying beast yet. In fact, this one is so terrifying that Daniel doesn't even have anything to compare it to. It's not like a tiger. It's not like a gorilla. It's not like anything else. It's just a strong, dreadful, terrifying beast. And you can see here that nobody knows for sure what to make it look like. You, you, you look up Daniel 7 different beasts and you get all kinds of different crazy pictures for, for what this thing is going to look like. Um, so there's no specific animal to draw for it. Well, secondly, the identity of this beast is known to us because there's a key element that is the same here as it was with the fourth kingdom in Daniel 2. It has the same characteristics as the legs and feet of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. It has large iron teeth. Iron is a crucial element to this beast that Daniel sees. The legs and the feet of Nebuchadnezzar's statue were characterized by what? Iron. This beast is, again, the Roman Empire. Not only that, but as we'll see, it will be the revived Roman Empire as well. So far, up to this point, what we've seen... Um, has been future to Daniel, but it's been history to us. 
from this point on, the next time that, that we meet together, we're going to get into future events for us as well. So this is exciting stuff. This is, I, this is exciting stuff. On the one hand, we read through history, and we may or may not be our favorite subject to study history, but in my mind, how accurate and how detailed these things are is just, is just amazing. Did Daniel know about the Medo-Persian takeover of Babylon at this point in time? No. This was the first year of Belshazzar's reign. He didn't know how far-reaching their empire would be. Much less could he have known about the Greek empire's dominion or their swiftness or their fourfold division. This is truly remarkable stuff, seeing the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God's power in all of this. It's fascinating to put all this together to see how God has been working and is continuing to work to bring about his plan for the restoration of his chosen nation as well as bringing about the restoration of the entire world to someday be under the rule of his son on the throne. Someday we will all be a part of that coming kingdom that God will establish on earth for us. We won't have to worry about national debt or about wars overseas. We won't be wearing masks or getting vaccines for viruses or any of that stuff. And we'll see as we continue with Daniel's prophecy, the beasts will be done away and we'll be left ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ for all eternity. What a wonderful hope that we have as believers, as those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ for our salvation. And we'll look more at these future events in our next, next time together. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you and we give you praise, Lord, for another uh, time that we can spend in your word. And we thank you, Lord, for these um, visions, these, these truths that you've given to Daniel and for the, just the fact, Lord, that, that they are written down for us to study and uh, to know what your plans are. We thank you so much for that. We just pray, Lord, that we would be diligent in studying your word that we would, um, Lord, just come to understand it in the way that you have meant it for us to understand it, and we just give you praise, Lord, that um, uh, you give us these opportunities to do that. Lord, I just thank you for our time here together once again. I thank you for um, the opportunity that we have to worship you this morning. I pray that you would be with us in the next hour as we uh, worship once again. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to understand the word as it's taught to us, and we just pray that you would be glorified and honored by all that we do. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.